What's your UC role at this point right now? Well, that's, that's a great story because we really created two roles for me. One was going to be, I was a Cuban and Italian. Okay. That my, uh, mother was Cuban just in case something they didn't buy it. The other one, I was Italian from Sicily fourth generation. So I was more Americanized. So I was a guy who had befriended the owner of the club and we were out there gambling together. I was from Florida. I had a crew of Marielle boatlift thieves and they would do smashing grabs and they would do shakedowns and they would do robbing the dope dealers. So I was a guy who, you know, was a knockaround guy, a guy who, who's been there and done that, you know? So I was good friends with the guy. So I'm hanging out at the club looking to maybe invest in the club. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Then you said Giglio. So let folks know. What- Giglio material is any kind of stuff that's in your files against you. Any, let's say, for instance, you have been busted for lying and in an investigation. Perjury. Or uh, perjured yourself some kind of way or you, you lack candor in an internal investigation. That has to be prevented. That has to be submitted to the defense. And they, of course, could uh, attack you with that and make you less credible to the jury. Use that to impeach your credibility, which, but yeah, that, exactly. Good. I, I remember when I was in Miami, and I was a cop for almost 12 years before I went to DEA, and I'd been on DEA a couple of years and went down to the U.S. Attorney's Office. And one of the attorneys, you know, they were going over whatever case we'd done. And he says, Well, do you have any uh, video of it? And I said, No, we didn't, you know, this, it didn't allow us to, to put cameras up anywhere. And he said, Well, do you have any vi- audio recordings? I'm like, No, this wasn't a wiretap case. We didn't have an undercover. This is how it happened. And I'm like, You've got agent testimony. What more do you need? And he's like, dude, <laughs> you need to catch up to whatever year it is. He said, the best evidence we can have in front of a jury is video. Second best is audio. Third best is you. And man, I, it's, it smacked me like a hammer on top of the head. I'm like, son of a bitch. I mean, we're the good guys. Everybody wants DNA. If you don't got DNA, if you don't got DNA, yep. they go, where's the DNA? We got to prove it. If you don't have this, it's like, to your point, Steve, it's like the testimony of the officer is not considered evidence anymore, which it used to be back in my day. Mm-hmm. Our, our testimony was considered evidence. But anyway, we digress. Drinking game, I think that's number three, maybe number four. Well, I can, may I digress, digress one more time? Now, would you, how would you feel about your kids? What kind of input and counsel you provide them? They wanted to get into law enforcement today. Ooh, well, it'd be a heart-to-heart conversation of reality and what's really going on. Uh, well, look, my daughter thought about that. She wanted to apply, uh, kind of following her mom's footsteps. She was going to go into communications, uh, look at doing that, because she she liked that part of it. She actually looked at the street, but she talked to me about it. But one of the things I would do, and, and this is something I've sent books to when we did Claudia Polinar. She was the L.A. County uh, L.A. Sheriff's deputy. Her and her partner were shot and ambushed by that guy. She was shot several times, like through the face. Read a book, and the book is called uh, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement. I said, if you want to know what the job's really like, 
go read this book. I made my nephew read it. He's now working for the St. Paul Police Department. Uh, when he graduates, he'll, he's going to become an officer. But I said, read that book because you got to know what it's like to come home at night and not want to talk to anybody. And you can't trust people around you. I said, you have to know what it's like when your circle of friends starts getting smaller and smaller. You got to start recognizing the signs because I have lost more friends to suicide than I have from line of duty deaths. And suicide is is still the biggest killer of cops, but yet they don't address it enough. They don't talk about it enough. It was a taboo subject when I was on the job, probably when you were there. Oh, we don't talk about suicide, but guess what? That's the biggest killer for cops. So that would be kind of my, that would be my advice to not only my kids, they're all grown up. Thankfully, they've got their good careers now, but anybody going into it, read the book, understand what you're getting into. And then to your point, this day and age, it is not like when you and I got on the job. Now it's like you're being recorded, you're being tracked, you're being doxxed, your information is being, you know, uh, identified and released to people. Um, you know, it just, it's a completely different ballgame now. So why did you ask that? What did you ask? No, I, I, I my answer there would be the same. I mean, I would counsel them not to get in. The way the things have changed and the disrespect that our officers are facing daily uh, the fact that no one comes to the aid of uh, police officers. Everybody's got their cameras you know, waiting to go record. to YouTube. Yeah, exactly. That way, you know, it, it's just tragic uh, what law enforcement has become. And, uh, and and it really, it's sad because uh, it used to be where people trusted us. And uh, it, it's just a, a horrible thing. I would definitely counsel them to, my daughter rather, never to be involved in this, find a different job because it's not worth it. Yeah. One last thing before we get into it. And I saw this on Twitter yesterday, uh, just scrolling through something. I saw a video and it says that, look, check out this video of this guy in a Jeep chasing down an off-duty officer. Cause you can see the, it's, he's got, he's got one of the ring cameras or whatever. So you see out of his front, he's got his police car there. And this guy in this Jeep is trying to run him over. And this guy's backing up. Well, the guy kind of hits a tree. So the guy runs into his house to get a gun to come back out. And what he's trying to do is just keep, he's, he didn't engage the guy right away. It's like, just get away from me, get out of here. He's actually showing good restraint. Well, the guy backs up his Jeep and starts coming after the officer. And you see him go out of frame. It's like he hits him. I don't know what the condition of the officer is, but this guy was literally running him over. And yet the comments were, oh, guys weren't a University of Auburn shirt. It must have been, you know, they must have had a grudge or this. People were making fun of the fact that an off-duty officer was getting run over by a guy in a fucking Jeep. And I just wanted to, that's why I wouldn't cancel anybody to go into it because they would rather make fun of you, make fun of somebody running over, sit there and not only cops, uh, Jack, but we've seen it in New York and other places. Somebody's getting their ass beat. They're getting their, they're getting kicked and beat down and nobody comes to their aid. Not even, there's no good Samaritans anymore. It's all like, oh, here's my 15 seconds of fame. I'll post this on Twitter or YouTube or, you know, TikTok or whatever else. And ha ha, looking at this guy getting their ass beaten. I'm going, why aren't you hopping in there and stopping the ass beaten? You know, exactly. ass wipe. Exactly. Sorry, I digressed. Emotional digression. Real quick. So let's start setting up a drinking game. That's number five. Uh, let's start setting up now your story. But I wanted to preface it by saying you talked about working undercover. Was there a program in the Bureau to teach you how to work undercover, or did you just kind of have to do that OJT, on-the-job training? Well, when I first got there, there was none. I mean, originally, it uh, uh, just started because I was a kid from the Bronx, and, you know, I, I kind of familiar with the streets, and I felt comfortable in it. But what happened was Judge Webster, who was the FBI director at the time, went up on the hill and this is after AppScan and 
after the Donnie Brasco case and after uh, some of the other uh, major undercover operation was that all of our undercover agents receive a, uh, a training. Well, somebody told them, no, that's not the case. So they brought us all in. I've already had been involved in working undercover and we had to be certified. So it was kind of like a ad hoc program, like uh, Donnie Brasco's uh, partner, Eddie Robb gave the class and this. They were all hearing war stories. And what we found out that there was an initial class years ago that contained guys from AppScan and Donnie Brasco, but they discontinued it. And now they were bringing it back. So they brought us all back and then we were so-called certified. Now, let me tell you about what my thoughts about being an undercover is. This is something you can't teach. You either have this or you don't have this. You have to be outgoing personality. You have to be comfortable around people not like you and maybe that you don't even like. You have to be a person like a chameleon. You have to be, of course, extroverted. Now, if you don't have these skills in your personality at that age of your life, you're not going to get it. We are what we are, you know? So if you think that, oh man, you know, I'm a bookworm, I'm a, I'm this, but I want to become an undercover agent. So I want to go to the school and become one. You're going to wind up getting yourself hurt or somebody hurt along the way. So what they uh, now have is a program to try to eliminate those people who are in for that reason and concentrate on what could, uh, you know, how to fine tune your skills, which is what I believe in. But I personally didn't have it. It's something you you build from trial and error, you know, the do's and the don't. Uh, I didn't learn from anybody. I kind of learned on my, on my own. I, I learned mostly from either seasoned case agents or their informants. And their stories became my stories. So I knew what it was like out there. Like, hey, you know, we all grew up in a law enforcement, pro-law enforcement world. But out there's a whole different mentality. So when you hear the informants of how they carry themselves and how they behave with this guy said this and what he said, and it, it kind of that's really your lesson of what it is, because the rules on the streets are different than the rules in the police department or the FBI and on the normal streets. So that's how I, I approached it. Uh, I was able, luckily, because, again, I spoke Spanish. I started getting bigger. I didn't look like an agent. <clears throat> I had some good informants. I learned some of the things that I learned is the, the informant's reputation that walks you in has to be one that's a respected within that group. You can't go in with an informant who they look at as a piece of shit garbage can because then guess what? You're a piece of shit garbage can. So unless so you, you go with people that are have some kind of status. You go with people that their rep becomes your rep because their word is good enough. So it, it, that's kind of how I learned through the process of it. Uh, I felt very comfortable. I, I did so much on the cover work, but my specialty, guys, is narcotics solely because that's all I ever worked and uh, uh, until I got to the mob case. But in the in the drug world. It's interesting when you're dealing with Dominicans, Colombians, Cubans, Puerto Ricans, 
uh, it's uh, it was always different. Then you have to worry, of course, about getting ripped off, which happens a lot too, and how you present yourself. And so there's a lot of uh, working dope is not only dangerous, uh, much more dangerous than I think what wise guys is concerned, uh, but also something that you got to be prepared. You can't just go into this because otherwise you're just going to be marked as a fish and they're going to take advantage of you. That's, that is excellent what you said right there, because a lot of this is they look at you like prey. So either you're, you're hunting something or you're being hunted and you've got to, you've got to be able to stand up to these folks and push back. We were, when we interviewed Dominic Polifrone, he was the ATF agent that took down uh, Richard Kuklinski, you know, the Iceman out there. Yes. And he, that's exactly what he said. He said, you had to be able to, they had guys going, oh, he called you. He says, fuck him. I ain't going to call him back. He can just wait. It's having those kind of cojones to say, this is the way the game is played. If I'm too anxious, if I look like I'm needy, they don't want you. You're not, then you're not legitimate. It's all about creating the legitimacy. So let's, let's talk about this because really. Wait, I'm sorry. Can I just add to this? Cause you mentioned a good point. It's also the same. If I'm going in to buy from you 10 keys of Coke and you say to me, Hey, I can give you 10 keys and heroin. And you jump on that. And you're kind of like, hey, yeah, that's a good idea. You know, you're tested constantly by dopers. You know, my thing was, hey, I don't need any fucking heroin. I can't move that shit. I can move the coke, but I can't move that. But I'll see what I can do down the line. So you're constantly being, you got to be careful when you're undercover that people are testing you because they don't believe you. They made, you know, they are also in fear that they're going to get ripped off, just like you should be in fear that you may get ripped off or hurt. So it is a situation where you play a role that, and again, this is the rules of the street. When you're out there, you play the rules of the street. I remember going to do some undercover and some agent, brand new agent out of Quantico that was about, I call him a snowflake, that looked like a, a guy coming with his docker pants and his little badge on the side, his polo shirt. He says, so I took the liberty of writing your, uh, uh, your script for tomorrow. Go script. What are you talking about? He says script here. So I pick up the paper. I humored him, and it says, "Hey, dude, what's up?" I said, "What the fuck is wrong with you?" I says, "You you don't use these scripts. Things are fluid when you're doing. You don't try to get everything in in one day. You you look at body body language. You look at the eyes, the reflection. Hey, dude, what's up? That sounds like." <laughs> That's, that's, hilarious. That, that's what the guy wanted me to say. And I said to him, you can't script this. It's just tell me what the parameters are. And if I can get there, I will. But if not, that's why God invented tomorrow. I'm not going to do it today. I may do it tomorrow, the next day, because you can't go in and ask stupid questions because otherwise they're going to be wise. So sometimes we got to think, you know, uh, you got to think of creative ways to to come around. I did that in one case where this guy was money laundering. These Russians, they were money. We were doing a reverse. We're giving them money to launder, but the money has to be derived from drug proceeds. They didn't want to talk about drugs. So one day we were at Victor's Cafe in Manhattan on 52nd Street. We set up with another uh, Colombian agent, comes in with another agent and a bodyguard. And I said, oh, shit. How are you doing? The guy sends a bottle of Dom Perignon to us. And I said, see that guy? That's the guy we've been doing the fucking money. He was just telling me that he's got another shipment. You think you can move? Oh, yeah, whatever. They were toasting the guy. 
but we got them on tape that they knew that it was derived from criminal proceeds. So we have to, as undercover agents, think outside the box to accomplish our goal. But you went outside the script. What the hell were you thinking, yes, Jack? I, I didn't even throw a dude in there. I could just, I could I don't even you know. Wait a minute. Hold on just a second. Here, I'm supposed to say, oh, hey, dude, what's up? You know, what? God. But but I was wondering, should I say, hey, dude, what's up? Oh, I mean, like, how, how are you doing this? And also, how do you say dude in Spanish? Duda? Duda. Oh, hey, Duda. <laughs> yo, yo, Duda, que paso? Yeah, que paso? You know, I, I don't understand. People think when you work on the, and that's another pet peeve of mine about undercover. People forget that we have the same fucking badge as they do. So don't come in there treating me like a fucking snitch. Okay. I got the same badge as you. So therefore, you know, you show me respect and I'm not going to listen to what you tell me. I have an input in this as well because my ass is out there in the front lines. You're in here. Yeah, I'm the one out there at the point of the spear, at the tip of the spear here. You're what we used to call a rim for rear echelon motherfucker. You're sitting in back. While, <laughs> That's a good one. While the rest of us are out there doing this stuff. Well, let's let's start working into this because you've laid out a lot of good groundwork about being the UC, but you've done Spanish stuff, you know, you've done uh dope dealers, but we want to talk now about the Gambinos, because one of the five major crime families uh in New York. And so how, give us the trajectory. How did you start getting involved and why did they bring you involved in this case? You know, what, what is it that was being targeted? So let's start setting the context for the crime families in New York. What was going on? What were the Gambinos involved with? And then eventually, how did you get involved with this case? Let, let's just take it. Now, I don't want to say right from the beginning, but in terms of the context of setting it up for your operation. Okay. Well, in New York, in the New York area, there are really like seven families operating. Okay, the five families in New York is Colombo, the Bonanno, the Lucchese, the Gambinos, and the Genovese. But in the Newark area, you have the Elizabeth crew or the crew that's like the Sopranos. They they work in that area. They're known as the, the Cavalcante crew. And then Philadelphia, believe it or not, has a crew, maybe two, in North Jersey. So they work closely with the Gambinos and the Genovese. Now, those are the families that are in the area, mostly of the five big ones. Like the Elizabeth crew is very rare in New York, as well as the Philadelphia crew. Now, uh, how, it, how we came about here was that there was an Albanian gang that was shaking down strip clubs in New York. And they were very, they were used sometimes by the mob guys to beat up and intimidate and shake down businesses, and they would split the money with the, in this case, uh, the Gambino crime family. So what happened was an agent that I had worked with on the Russian case said to me, he goes, hey, uh, Jack, we're getting this case off the ground. Are these Albanians shaking down these people? We want to find out more about it. Uh, it's at a strip club that they are sh uh, shaking down. Would you be interested? So I said to him, Wait a minute. you had me on strip club. <laughs> That's what I to say. Were you interested in the case <laughs> or the strip club? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll say yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, sir, I, yes, I need a requisition. Hey, dude, what's happening? I need a requisition at $1,000 bills for this case. So so anyway, so that that happened. So I said, hey, you know what? Let me look. So we had to meet the source. I always believe in when I'm meeting the source. 
I met the source. Hey, the guy was kind of like guy I can get along with and all of that. And he was one of the owners of the strip club. Now it comes the interesting part is that what happens is as we're waiting, the Albanians start trying to shake him down even harder and walk into the bar two by two, then two more show up, then three more show up, and then start smacking customers around, breaking bottles, harassing the women, and all of a sudden a gunfire goes off. So everybody from the club leaves and now brings them to a situation where um, they decide like, okay, what are we we're going to do? He decides to say, you know what, this is not good. But the next day, right after that happened, when he's kind of like, you can't believe this happened, a wise guy shows up and he says, hey, I heard you had a problem yesterday, but we can make your problem go away. So he said, well, how so? He says, well, those Albanians are looking for shakedown money. Well, we'll take care of them, but you got to pay us 5000 a week. So it, what's the difference? One's shaken down and the other's shaken down. So that's when they decided to bring me in to pay off the uh, Albanians or the Italians to making sure this doesn't happen. So we created the scenario. I go in, I paid off the wise guy and said, look, this money here is to make sure Hold on, you're getting too far. Yeah, there. We've got sure. to establish something before you get into that. Who, at this point, who are you? What what's your what nationality are you? What ethnicity are you? What's your UC role at this point right now? Well, that's that's a great story because we really created two roles for me. One was going to be I was a Cuban and Italian. OK, that my uh, mother was Cuban just in case something, they didn't buy it. The other one, I was Italian from Sicily, fourth generation. So I was more Americanized. So I was a guy who had befriended the owner of the club, and we were out there gambling together. I was from Florida. I had a crew of Mariel Boatlift thieves, and they would do smashing grabs, and they would do shakedowns, and they would do robbing the dope dealers. So I was a guy who, you know, was a knockaround guy, a guy who, who's been there and done that, you know? So I was good friends with the guy. So I'm hanging out at the club looking to maybe invest in the club. So in comes the wise guy. And now I'm wired and I have the money with me. And I say to the guy, um, I can introduce to him. And I said, listen, I heard uh, we had a problem here. And you guys can make sure that problem goes away. So he said, yeah, absolutely. I give him the 5,000. I said, you got to assure me that there can't be any more frequent uh, Albanians coming in here and causing shit up. Because when they come in here, they clear out my, my strip club. And now we got a problem. There's no money. No, no, I understand that. I won't. So sure enough, I paid the guy off. We never heard of the Albanians again. Albanians had disappeared because they, I, we all thought that they were working in hand. You have the Albanians that create a situation, and then you have the mob guys who offer a solution. So it was your textbook extortion case, you know? And what was your, what was your UC name? It was Jack Falcone. Ah. Now, I took the name Falcone in honor of Judge Giovanni Falcone in Italy, who was killed by the mob 
on his on the airport uh, on his way to the airport. Oh, okay. So it was kind of like a tribute of him, which later on it almost backfired on me. But I'll tell you that about later. So anyway, the bottom line was that uh, uh, we paid off the guy. We now started to hitch our wagon to the Gambino crime family. Now, again, that weren't the original targets. The original target was, you know, the Albanians, because they were really ruthless, tough, really hardcore guys. So as we were going along with it, an all-time capo named Greg De Palma, who used to own the Westchester Premier Theater in New York, where it was the place where Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, uh, the who's who in entertainment, would play at this mob-owned joint, gets out of jail, and immediately goes to the strip club because he it used to be his. It used to be under his uh, umbrella, so to speak. And we said to ourselves, do we really want to go with this guy or do we want to stay with the new mob guy whom we paid off? We opted to go with Greg De Palma because Greg liked to talk and we in the FBI like to listen. So we felt it was a nice match that we get a guy who yip-yaps all day long and he tells you, and it was sure, it was a home run. He told us all about the administration, who was running the family. He told us about the inner workings of it. He uh, was a guy that I ultimately became so close to him that I became his driver. Uh, and I've met all the gangsters and uh uh, that was my role, just being around Greg De Palma, meeting gangsters and seeing what some of the shakedown victims are. So by the time you met De Palma, when you decided to go that direction, how long had it been since the start of the uh, investigation? Uh, probably, I would say, about two months, because we were targeting the Albanians. Right. So the, we, our investigation was focused in the—we had surveillances on the Albanians— we had uh, everything going, and then we also had surveillance on the mob guy who came in to shake, shake down. And we saw, first of all, he wasn't even on the charts. We had this guy. No one knew who he was. Uh, he wasn't in the so-called famous FBI chart. But we, our surveillance saw him meeting with significant people in the Gambino crime family. We then later realized that he was the nephew of the acting boss of the Gambino crime family. So we were able to identify him and several other people that were off the charts through this investigation. So we finally, when we made that decision to go with, uh, with Greg De Palma, because when Greg came out, that's the guy we targeted. If not, we don't know which way we would have gone, whether we would have gone with uh, Louis Filippelli which was the, the mob guy, or the Albanians. My preference would have been the Albanians because they were such a ruthless group. They were violent. Yes, very violent and shook down a lot of the mob places in New York that had no fear, and they needed to be taken off the streets. So, uh, But the decision was made to go after uh, the Gambinos, and then when Greg De Palma came, it was a treasure trove of information because— he just loved to talk this man. So was you know was what was Greg's role? Was he did he become the boss then, or what? Where was he at in the hierarchy? Greg was a uh, captain of the Gambino crime family, 
<clears throat> he was in prison for shaking down scores with John Gotti Jr. and several other high-ranking Gambinos. His son was also a mobster under John Gotti Jr., but he tried to kill himself when he was exposed that he was ratting people out in Atlanta at the strip club there. So he hung himself and went into a vegetative coma. Greg De Palma eventually was able to get him released and put in a nursing home. And that's what we would do a lot of our meetings was at this nursing home with his son uh, with a respirator and all. And uh, he would talk to him. And it was kind of sad seeing that. But Greg De Palma was in the mindset that his son was going to come out of this vegetative coma. But that's where he chose to to do all the meetings at this uh, nursing home. I, I read in your book that that uh, Greg had a very hard time getting the nursing home to allow his son to come in there because of Greg's reputation. And he swore, oh, I, I, everything's above board, you know, nothing, everything's good. And then... <laughs> That he's he's MFing this and that and scaring everybody to death in there. I mean, he- oh my God! I tell you, it was hilarious. He went in and he gave the the director of the nursing home says, "Listen to me." He, he I says, "Just don't bring the mob stuff." I know who you are because he was like a celebrity gangster. I mean, he ran this famous Westchester Premier Theater, and everybody knew what kind of guy he was. And uh, sure enough, he gave him his word, and within. He just said, oh, fuck him, I'm having it. And we had all our meetings there. And all these other mobsters from families would come in. We had the surveillance outside. And Greg De Palma just uh, took it upon himself. I would pick him up there, drive him off there. He spent a lot of time with his son. But I wonder sometimes, did he love him more as his son? Or did he love him more as a meeting location? Yeah. Yeah, or love him more as a gangster. Oh, yeah. Because when you take that oath, you really then take that family as your number one family, not your normal family. The Gambinos became his family. Which is just unbelievable. You know, and, and I, I may be getting ahead of, of Morgan here, but uh, and I want to bring this up because I mentioned it to you on our initial call when you and I first talked. You're Cuban-American. You're a naturalized citizen the hell do you know about being an Italian mob member? <laughs> How'd you, you know that? I, that's, that was the beauty of it. We went in there with two separate identities and everybody believed I was Italian. It was not a question of it. Nobody said, you don't look Italian. I mean, I grew up eating black beans and rice and Maduros and yeah, I ate, I ate Italian food, but it was kind of funny because I was accepted. And, you know, I, I found it hard that people would do that. But I guess, you know, I carried myself because prior to taking on this role, I had they set up this so-called mob school where I learned not that I spoke Italian because these guys don't even speak Italian. OK, very little is. But I learned their ways. I learned because I, my role was going to be I was a guy from Miami, Florida, whose parents died at an early age. And that I hung out with a lot of Cubans in Miami, and I was a dope dealer. So because of that, I, I you know I could see being away from my so-called culture, but I still was able to eat and understand like Parmesan Reggiano, mozzarella, and all of the Italian foods that it would have been something common for me to have eaten. In the fact that I am Italian, but I was amazed too that it happened and. 
never once was there a question of it, uh, of that. Uh, you know, I mean, I go to Olive Garden, I get to bake ziti and lasagna, <laughs> and, you know. The, <laughs> There's Italian for you. Carbonara. And, I don't think I'm going to Yeah, you know in. what? You, you can't mention Olive Garden to a true Italian. Let me tell you something. <laughs> Olive you know, that's Garden. A, that's a testament to your undercover, undercover skills. And, and like you said earlier, man, it's – you say you didn't have that innate ability to work undercover. You must add something in your psyche that would allow you to adapt yourself to these different situations. Cause I worked undercover, but I was very short term. You're spending years and you're actually living with these guys, right? I mean, this isn't a nine to five job where you go meet them in the morning and you have lunch with them and you go. Oh, home and you oh yeah, you're right? right. I mean, get into that a little bit. Tell the, tell the fan, tell our listeners what you had to do. One of the things about undercover work is there are many different classes. There's the, short-term undercover, where you do maybe cameos. You show up, you do a buy bust, you do something. So you just show up. There's really minimal exposure to the target. Then you have what they call semi or a group two, which is like you meet every so often, and then comes your, what we call the group one. That's like an extensive undercover role where you take on a persona, you get an apartment, you live away from home, you create all of this idea. Well, that's kind of what we created. We had to create the fact that I was a guy from Florida and I was uh, a guy in New York. So I had my apartment in Manhattan at the park and I had a lot of cash. Actually, I even took it a step further than what the bureau usually provides. When I went down to Miami, when I was working other dope cases down there, I found a cemetery plot for a Mr. and Mrs. Falcone who had passed and they would be my parents. And the reason I did that was, let's suppose when I'm with the bad guy and innocently, I say, he'll say to me, hey, you're from Florida, right? Your parents passed away. Let's go for a ride. Let's go see. Let's pay our respects on him. What would you do? I knew where I would do. I'd drive him right to the freaking uh, to the place. And I sit there and I hope that when I went there with the flowers, that the uh, real relatives of the Falcons will not be there. But that's what I you, you had to, when you work the mob, you really got to be very detailed in your background. Where you work uh, by bus, as you guys know, you don't have to worry about any of that. It's you bring a source, you tag along, you do whatever. There's no, give me your ID. There's none of that crap. I had to join a union with the mob. So I had to make sure that everything was airtight. And the old man told me when I joined the union, he says, hey, I hope we don't take it personally, but we had you checked out and everything is clean. Now, you know, it wasn't clean, but this is something that the mob is fearful of. So they thank God for the Bureau having set up this, uh, the identity right. But you don't have to do that for every case. You do that when something like when you work the mob and the difference between working mob and dope. When I'm working dope, there's no accountability. I'll say to you, I'll get back to you. When? Well, I'll get back to you whenever. You don't ask me questions because then antennas were raised from you and I would raise from them. But with the mob, there's total accountability. Who are you? Where you come from? Uh, uh, how did you get here? Uh, what do you want? You know, all of that stuff, it's a whole different world uh, because it's such a tight-knit group. So as an associate of the Gambino crime family, I had to make sure my I's were dotted and my T's were crossed. Now, did your association with De Palma, did his, did he vouch for you or did he give you some cover where you didn't get that 
intense a scrutiny that somebody somebody else might have got? Yeah, absolutely. With him being attached to him, a captain of the Gambino, uh, opened a lot of doors for me. I would walk in restaurants. They would know, you know, I, I that's Greg's guy. Also, other families would have to respect because I was his driver. You know, so along with being associated with a captain, it comes with a lot of respect. Now, keep in mind, also comes with a lot of jealousy because there is a pecking order in the uh, in organized crime. And there's your associates. Above them are your wise guys, your made men. Above them are your captains who handle the crew. And then comes the administration, which is the boss, the underboss, and the concierge. Now, here I am dealing not with a soldier. I'm dealing with a captain. So soldiers were like, the fuck is this guy? You know, like, uh, it does kind of was unusual, but I became so close and he became so dependent on me that, uh, uh, you know, we struck like, I guess, for lack of a better word, a friendship, even though I disliked the man because he was just a greedy fuck this guy. Oh, he wanted his money and more money. And uh, it was funny. I go with him to do pickups of money. His envelopes are coming out of his pockets, his coat pocket. And then he say to me at the end, hey, Jackie boy, I says, I'm hurting for cash. You got a couple of, uh, you got a hunch for me? You can let me borrow? <laughs> I don't borrow. He never paid me fucking back. So anyway, the hunch, like, are you kidding me? You're loaded. You got thousands and thousands of dollars on, and you're hitting me for, because that's the nature of the beast. These guys I believe in, in take or be taken. That's kind of their model on the street. You know, it's always about the money with them and greed. And, uh, uh, and uh, you know, even at the very end, he proposed me for membership into Cosa Nostra. And he, I was going to get, uh, uh, supposedly go through the ceremony, but because there were some problems with the Bonanos, one being that their boss decided to flip, things were put in a kind of... Uh, on hold and the bureau management decided to end the investigation, which is something that I found to be very short-sighted. Uh, and I don't understand. So even why La Cosa Nostra has hiring freezes. Who would have known Murph? We thought it was only the government, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Even the organized crime folks, but let's, yeah. Um, we kind of got to the end way too fast. Let's back up a little bit because there's a thing, one of the write-ups, uh, too, out of the book. And I saw it's on the Amazon page too. I thought it was pretty cool. It's a good line. PD chops wasn't kicking up. And if he didn't start soon, he was going to get whacked. What? So who the hell is Petey Chops? All right. Petey Chops was an interesting guy. He was a made guy who was a book bookmaker in the Bronx. And one of the things that come with being in the mob or flying under the umbrella is it comes with a price. And that means you got to kick up. Money in the mob always flows up, never flows down. So here's this guy, Petey Chop, operating under the Gambino crime family, loan sharking, bookmaking, and he's not kicking money up to his superiors, which is Greg De Palma, because he was in Greg De Palma's crew. So that angered Greg <clears throat> because that could be money, <clears throat> excuse me, that could be money from him, like, you know, a couple of thousand a week, 
that he could be making, but Petey Chops is not paying. So he went on a mission to find him uh, in order to get him uh, motivated and to remind him of what you're supposed to be doing as a made man in the Gambino crime family. So what what was the what was the basically the vig each week? What were they expecting out of Petey? What was he having to turn? Well, they since he was a made guy, there was no vig involved. It was more like depending on how much traffic money he made, loan sharking. So if he's making, let's say, it's usually ten to twenty percent. So they would have to kick up to Greg. And then keep in mind, then Greg has to kick up some to the administration. Money always flows up in the mob, never flows down. So it isn't like Petey Chops could be hurting for money. Greg Kwama could give a rat's ass about him. But because he's making money, he wants that money. He deserves that money and he's entitled to it. So when when De Palma was asking you for a hunch, how much is a hunch? A hunch is a hundred bucks. Okay. So, yes. and that's why money always flows up. It's like, I'm not going to use my money. You're going to give me money. <laughs> yeah, that's always the way it works. And we would do, you know, it's a lot of tribute payment. Guys would give them envelopes and all of that. Because like he would say all the time, what are we doing here? If this construction companies are working because of some of the union contracts that we have, you, you got to pay us. That's just part of doing business. The mob gets paid because... Because of their influence and their participation, they need to be rewarded. They're not doing it for free. So Petey Chops was an example that he was long gone without paying. Greg wanted that money. And that day when he found them and he was hit by another soldier, almost killed them. Uh, the next day, Petey Chops showed up and gave Greg De Palma an envelope. And you know how much money he gave me and the other guy, the mate guy? Gave us nothing. Who said? Because that's... Money flows up. It doesn't flow down. But you know what flows down? Shit. Shit rolls downhill pretty fast in investigations and everything else. But talk about... Because what I want to do is get into the, the, the enterprise theory of you know, this investigation. It was a long... It was a big investigation. So let's bookend it by talking about from the time you started... Till the time it ended and you have your indictments and your arrests, how many years are we talking about? Or how long are we talking about? Well, actually, we made tremendous progress. I mean, we did it almost in three years where not only were we able to uh, identify a lot of victims so that were being shaken down by the mob, but also, and this is the part that that really troubled not me, but the United States Attorney well, it did it. It did trouble me, and the other agents working the case that they terminated it early. We wanted once he started talking about getting me straightened out. We wanted if we went through that process, then that would open the doors for us to this inner sanctum known as Cosa Nostra. So, because of that, we wanted to be able to further identify members find out more about their enterprise, what they're up to. And the only way to do that is through undercover, uh, through being made. But the Bureau decided not to do it and terminate it. So we only got as far as this crew that we were able to get. We got 32 guys. But think of it, had I been able to have been straightened out, we could have created jobs in other 
families, let's say in Kansas City or in Buffalo, bring in problems and say to Greg, I would say, hey, Greg, I got a guy in Buffalo or in Kansas City. He's getting a little problem with this. You know anybody? He could have worked it out to make a connection to identify that group. But the Bureau chose to... Uh, I know you kind of touched on it, but 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 was it simply because that they put a hold on making made people uh, because, like you said, of the arrests, or was there another reason? Because it seems to me it's like it's like it's like running a marathon and then and then stopping about a tenth of a mile before the end of the finish line, going, ah, you know what? I'm not going to finish the race. It's like, no, mm-hmm. we've come this far. Exactly, and that's how I, that's how I felt when you work dope, as you guys know, it's climbing the ladder. You get it from the street urchin to supplier to this, this. You try to go up the ladder. Here, they were not going up the ladder. So my my frustration was is they. I was told by Greg, and it did happen. I was, and it's all recorded conversation where they said they got an inside story that a guy of significance from another family cooperated. So we're canceling all making uh, out uh, who's going to get straightened out until we figure out who it was. A couple of weeks later, the news breaks. Joe Massino, the boss of the Bonanno crime family, decides to cooperate. So now these guys, the response I was given to by management was that these guys are getting old. They may not be around. Okay, my response to that is, okay, so... The object is to go up the ladder. So let me get straightened out. Let's wait to see what happens and identify further the family as well as the other families. But they were adamant about it, uh, even though uh, the United States attorney wanted me to continue along with the other cases. This is a decision that these management group made. Of course, they benefited from it because they all stood up in the podium. And next thing you know, they all got promotions. Would it be fair to say that the people that made that decision were getting old and getting close to the end of their careers and they wanted a little bit of recognition before they went out? Well, that, yeah, you know what? That could be, but I think it was more like they wanted the recognition so they could use it for advancement. See, they, I never understood having been like you guys working dope. It, it's always you go up the ladder. And I, my argument was, hey, guys, we're in with these guys. He's going to propose me. I'm going to be a made guy, so I'm going to be in the inner circle. I'm going to know what's happened. I'm going to be at meetings that we dream about going. And I could also be, we could be creative to set up all of these scenarios around the country that we can identify all these mobsters and all these families. And they would just adamant and shut it down. They shut the case. Hey, you said a term because uh, we've always called it, beca- you know, becoming a made man or going through the ceremony. But you said straightened out. The first time I heard that, I go straightened out. What'd you, I, I, my first thought, did you fuck up? What did you do? We're going to straighten you out. That's what normally it means. But how is but the term straightened out? How is that used in the context of becoming a made guy? Well, when you get when you get your button, in other words, your button means you got made. It's also like a slang that they use straighten out. In Italian is amico nostro, a friend of ours. Um, uh, or uh, uh, become a wise guy, a good fellow. But straighten out is a term that means that you've been straightened out, like you've been a civilian. Now you're a made man. See, in that world, 
the mob is, uh, besides being supposedly a secret criminal society, they look at themselves as grandiose, as big groups that so you straighten out into that life. Uh, an example of that would be is, let's say Steve and I, uh, I know Steve is a made guy, let's say with the Columbus, and he knows I'm a made guy with the, with the Campinos. Now, if I don't know him, he can't come up to him and say, hey, Jackie boy, you know, I'm with the Columbus, you know, and you're with the Campinos, yeah, because you're not supposed to acknowledge who you are. The only way it would happen is if you know Morgan, who is a Lucchese, and he knows that Steve is a mate guy, and then I'm a mate guy. Now, I call on you, Morgan introduces. You go to Steve and say, Steve, I want you to meet Jack. He's a friend of ours. Friend of ours means you are one of us. You could talk freely. You're one of our guys. But if I am not straightened out and I'm an associate, you will go to him and say, Steve, I want you to meet Jack. Okay? He is, uh, you start off, remember, friend of ours, a friend of mine. You say, he is a friend of mine. That tells Steve that you're his friend, but you're not a mate guy. There's certain things you shouldn't talk. So they identify themselves that way. There are all these rules in place about getting straightened out or being made. Um, they really believe in, in all of that. It's a status thing among them because with that comes power. You're part of a brand, uh, which is being, uh, you know, a made man in the Gambinos. And the process to be made, how it works is after you propose by, I mean, a lot of people spend lots of time as an associate, but let's say you're going to get proposed. Greg proposed me. So what they did was, they send a list around to all the families and say, Jack Falcone is going to replace Joey Bag of Donuts, who died in 1997. And these other names are on this list. Now, that list is being circulated to see whether you have any dirt on me. Or maybe I was assigned on record with you. Or there's something I should know. I was a rat or something. If not... Then I come in uh, and they set up a, a place to get straightened out within the family. All the bosses come, all of the captains, and then you're brought into this, usually a basement or an empty house or some huge suite, and you're brought one by one, those are being proposed, and there's a knife and a gun, and you say you take the oath to use either or at any time, and then there's a saint, a uh, uh, a picture of a saint card that they issue in church. You light it, you put your hands out, you light it on fire until it burns and you repeat, may I burn in hell like this saint if I betrayed the family. And you take your oath of amerta, which is the death for your silence. So that's when then you went through the ceremony, you are now a made guy where the boss will say, I'm going to give you the bookmaking operation here. I'm going to let you loan shark there. Now you start making more money than an associate. Now associates are kicking up to you. And of course, you would have to kick up to the captain and above. But you are now a significant player. Uh, this is going to shock you. When we had Stephen Matelski on, he's a Canadian cop, investigated organized crime. They actually have recorded a ceremony 
in Canada, and Canadians are a little bit more relaxed. It was two old fucking geezers in velour sweatsuits that showed up at a Motel 8 in a room. They got this on camera. The bed is unmade. He goes, yeah, you know, how you doing? Okay, yeah, you're just now part of the family. Congratulations. Where's the buffet? I mean, that's literally what it was. <laughs> in their velour track. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, that has changed because it's a big, it's a big honor. You bring everybody together, then you join a circle, and you had, you know all kinds of Italian sayings go on, and you're accepted as a mate guy. Now, I tell you how things have changed. The Bonanno crime family, which is also part of the Canadian family, do you know that now, or they did when I was out there in the street, are strip searching the guys. They take their clothes off to make sure that it's not recorded. Because prior to that, Canada, there was a recording of a maid ceremony in Boston that was actually recorded. And you can see that on the Internet uh, of people straighten out going through these rituals uh, and done, which is the ultimate betrayal to uh, to uh, expose uh, this uh, thing, because the mafia is supposed to be a close secret society. Now, another thing, too, just to keep in mind, it's funny how in law enforcement calls it. La Cosa Nostra, LCN. It's not LCN. The wise guys call it Cosa Nostra. There's no law. That just became something law enforcement threw in there. But it's always... It's not La Bronx. It's The Bronx. So... I... Yes. <laughs> no, no, it's just Cosa Nostra, Cosa Nostra, not La Cosa Nostra. Because the wise guys call it Cosa Nostra. They, but law enforcement for years and years to this day, everybody calls it LCN or... La Cosa Nostra, uh, uh, it's Cosa Nostra, which means thing of ours, which is what that family is about. Well, when you were talking about the list going around to all the families about potential guys who are going to be made, you said he's replacing so-and-so, Joey Bag of Donuts. Do you, does there have to be a vacancy? Is there a limited number of people that can be made into these organizations? Well, they prefer filling in those who have died, but if not during the holiday, especially Christmas, they may give you a slot or two because they try to keep it like, for instance, the Gambino is supposed to have 250 made men. Okay. Uh, the other families like the Colombo, Bonanos, they may have 80, whatever. But the Columbo, the Genovese, which is considered the Ivy League of organized crime, and the Gambinos, that used to be number one, they have 250, 275. Those are the big families made. So if, what the, if you don't have somebody, you put their name down and maybe, I don't know, I've never seen it, but I'm sure you, it's, they'll know it's a slot for Christmas or, or something. But it's a big deal to be proposed. It's like one of the biggest things, because that means you pass the test. And that test is that you're able to keep your mouth shut, that you're willing to make money for the family, that you're willing to do prison time, and be capable of violence. Not everybody has to kill somebody. That is all Hollywood that you got to whack somebody to do that. There was a lot of guys that never, they're looking for earners, guys who make money. Because if they're making money, they know it's got to be kicked up. They don't want a bunch of brokesters. Because if you deal with guys who are not making money, what's the sense about Well, they surround themselves with people who don't make money, then pretty soon you're out of business. You want type A's. Exactly. You want those guys and you want to reward them. You want to give them the protection. Now, the beauty of what my guy, the captain did, Greg De Palma, was that the money kicked up 
and he told me this, he preferred kicking more than usual because this way, if he stepped on his crank, then they would have, they would feel a little better for him than, you know, so in other words, instead of giving the guy 10%, they may give him 15% or 20. So now he does something stupid and they say, you know what? All right, Greg, don't do it again. Or another guy could be shelved, which means they lost all their power, could be chased, thrown out of the area, or could be worse, could be whacked. But killing is no longer the way it used to be because leaving bodies on the street is not good for well, business. it gets the FBI's and everybody else's attention. Hey, real quick, I just have to ask you, when you were being proposed, was there a height weight requirement? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> Uh, yes, and I met it. <laughs> well, you see the Sopranos, they were all about your size, right? You know, it's funny. We all used to, like one time they came in, we all got these velour. You mentioned velour suits. We all got oh these my God. Uh, tachini suits, right? And here we are, these fat, we were all like 5XLs. We're sitting around breakfast, look like some old, degenerate, fat, out of shape guys at the diner with this Sergio Tachinis, you know? Nobody ever asked me in the, no one ever asked me in the mob if I wanted to work out, but they've asked me all the time to go get something to eat, Yeah, you know? <laughs> Priorities, my friend. <laughs> hey, well, let's, let's talk about now, out of this three years, what kind of cases were you making? So we kind of want to kind of, as we start doing this glide path, you know, towards the end of this investigation, what were some of the big cases you were making? What were, I mean, even in spite of the fact they weren't going to let you go through with the ceremony, but what were some of the types of cases you were making? What things were you guys clearing? And eventually, what did you end up indicting? You know, you said, I think you said you arrested 32, right? Right. Well, what happens when you work an undercover case, as, as you guys know, is that it's an investigative technique. You know, it's no different than pen registers, uh, Title Threes, or whatever. So you complement it with wiretaps. You complement uh, other things that you're able to get to people that some other way, because that's the object. So what we were able to do with this case, we were able, which is always a big thing in the mob, to find out what the pecking order is. Who is in the administration? Because when it comes to charging at the end, you want to go with Rico and charge all the the main players in the, that have been involved. We identified also lots of mate guys that were flying under the radar, one of them being Petey Chops. No one knew who he was, no one at all. This guy operated for years in the Bronx, made millions, loan sharking and bookmaking, yet we had no record of the guy. No one knew who Louis Filippelli was, Robert Vaccaro. I, I, I could go on and on. So we were able to identify these made guys, and when you're working organized crime, it's good to have a jacket for each one to work case, and I know who's who's doing what. We also were identifying some of the victims or people that were being shaken down, those companies. So we were able to catch that payoffs through either surveillance or wiretaps. So that's kind of how, and, and the, that was the other thing. One of the, the best things that enhanced our case was to bring in a guy from the Labor Department, this agent named Joe De La Pena. He came in and he was able to really piece together all of these uh, companies that were kicking in and all of these violations within the labor department and charged them. So because of him, we were really able to, to do a lot 
um, which I thought that he was a big asset with us to uh, uh, to work. So th- that's kind of uh, what, what we found, the corrupt union. I mean, I got into a union where we went to get signed up, and I got health, I got eyes, dental, and retirement. The benefits in this union was better than the benefits I got at the FBI. What did you think about switching jobs? Well, yeah. <laughs> And I didn't have to get weighed in. So, <laughs> so, so anyway, these guys, these guys got, so we got in and we found these, the, the uh, union was corrupt. We took down the president of that union. But this is the way we also found about the way they're doing business. Greg De Palma said that every big major construction job has to kick up minimum of 2% for all the jobs to organize crime. Because if not, they're going to have a shortage in labor. The unions are going to have a problem. The bid rigging, how much they would bid on a job with, let's say, 100 carpenters union. And then they wound up getting 30 carpenters. And the rest were all, uh, uh, you know, journeymen who had no idea. You know, they were just getting on the job training experience. But you're still building the company all that money. So there's a lot of corruption that goes on. Um, in uh, behind the scenes in, in just about every thing affecting New York. You have corrupt, uh, um, what do you call those, uh, ma- uh, table, uh, uh, what do they call those, uh, uh, where you put on top of a table in a restaurant, tablecloths. They have cleaning services for that. They have the wine. They have the, the food, the meat. It's and the way the mob works is if I am in the mob and I have a restaurant, let's say I'm a record, I need, uh, let's say, liquor, wine. I can't just go for the cheapest guy. They'll tell me who to go because they're always constantly feeding each other uh, business. So you would then get your liquors from this company, and maybe pay a little more than the company you wanted because here you're giving business to a mob related business that at the end is going to kick up money to the mob. So you see, it's all about the money with these guys. Now, did you just seriously ask, what do they call those cloths they put on tables? What are those things called? <laughs> yes, I, I did. I, I, you know what it is? I don't have time to put one on. I just go to town. I just got, I just got to bring it to me. Hey, I want to I want to ask you about something philosophically about being a UC. But before I do that, let's, let's kind of book in this by talking about the conclusion of the case of the, the brass says, hey, look, we're going to shut this thing down. So how do you bring this thing down? How do the arrests go? You know, what things happen uh, to finally bring this investigation to an end? By the way, what was the name of the investigation? Because every investigation operation's got a name. Yeah, this was called Last Camp. Um, uh, camp, well, it's usually you call a camp, let's say two mobsters are talking, what camp you're with, like what family you're with, oh, okay. they call the camp. So this was the last family. And it came to an end. Actually, I was dealing with one soldier, this guy named Robert Baccaro. I led him to believe that we were going to fly the next day to uh, Italy because he was part of the pizza connection. He knew some of it, and he was going to take me there. And even though I complained, don't shut it down, let's go to Italy, let's do this. Um, Anyway, we told him that. We knew where everybody was. We arrested everybody at early you know, zero dark hundred hours, except for one guy who went on the lamb. And I like to say that it's spelled L-A-M. A lot of people put L-A-M-B, which is hilarious. The lamb. He went on the lamb and he was actually uh, turned himself in. 
which is the way, by the way, you're supposed to do. If you're a wise guy, you go on the land because this way you can see what they got on you. You know, you don't want to turn yourself in. You want to wait to see what's out there and all of this. And then subsequently later, he turned himself in. Uh, so everybody was arrested. Uh, Greg Palmer, I think, did 12 years and he died in prison. His son also died in prison. Uh, some guys got usually the nickel, which is what they get, five years. Um, as they always say, they could do that standing on their heads. Um, and a couple of low-level guys might have gotten a few years. But uh, again, I, I was displeased with the way it was ended because I wish we could, could have continued this case. I then moved on to, actually, I moved on to the Hollywood uh, Police Department case. So um, that's kind of what uh, what happened with that. If you had gone to Italy that next day, what was your protection? How were you protected by the Bureau or anybody else? Well, through we have a very strong uh, connection with the police department in Italy because of the Falcone uh, murder case. Was that the uh, Carabinieri? Or was, yes, I love to say, they, I love to say the right. Carabinieri because they drive the really fast cars because they can get the Maseratis and the Yes, exactly. I like your accent, too. Ah, grazie, grazie. You're the only person that does. I'll say that. <laughs> I just make them feel good. Yeah, there you right? go. I got you. I got you. Undercover role. Yes, exactly. Undercover podcast guest. Oh, we got this figured out. Okay. Yes, exactly. Uh, but anyway, the uh, so we were going to go over there and, and do that. But they were losing interest in doing that. You know, and my thing was Joe Pistone got six years to do his. I got two and a half, almost three. I said, saying, give me more time. I mean, I, I'm already being proposed like he was. Let me, let me, give me another year in this thing. It wasn't that I was into working on the cover. I had other, I was working multiple cases anyway. So I had other things that I could have gone, but that was my first attempt at working organized crime. I, I, like I said, I worked dope and I was kind of disappointed. I, I think when you work dope, people, agents are more aggressive I think the agents are the ones who go all the way to the top. Don't, you know, pass, go, collect $200, just go. And here it was a little more methodical, slow moving. Uh, I don't, I, you know, it was different. They don't take the chances we take working dope. Yeah. So, it, and I, I mean, so this is not an attack on the FBI. I mean, we, we have a good nature bantering back and forth and give each other. That's just the, the law enforcement culture is like that. You know, the outside people who haven't experienced cops, uh, either as family or inside the culture, don't quite understand our kind of sick sense of humor. And it's nothing personal. We bust each other's chops. That's just the way it is. But so I got to ask, though. That was a long people, premise to ask in this question, Murph. Well, the, the people that are making these decisions, you, you have respect for those who have been there and done that. But the ones that are that sit in their chairs, that the only time they pull their weapon out is when they go to the range every six months to qualify, you know, have probably, uh, you know, a lot of those people have never faced danger directly themselves. And are those the people making this decision for you? Well, you know, that's a great, uh, great point. I'm putting um, you on the spot. I have, no. I, and you know what? Here, here's the thing is I have met some fantastic bosses. Okay. But the promotional system in the Bureau is kind of skewed, okay? Because how it works is you simply have to raise your hand and say, I want to be a boss. So then you go through the process of being a, 
and a, a principal supervisor learning, but you ultimately have to go to Washington, D.C. Now, a lot of guys that could be great bosses don't want to do that because they have a family. The kids are in high school. They don't want to go schlepping all the way to headquarters and do that. So what do they do? They go there. They do a year and a half. When they're in headquarters, they're just going along. They don't want to have any issues. They don't want to. We saw that all the time working dope. You don't want to get into a pissing contest because you just want to move on to the next level. Then you come back to a field. You work cases. And, and you know how the administrative thing uh, work, Steve, and you've seen it. There are guys who go in there because they really are capable and really want to make a difference. There are others who just want to run cases because they could not make cases. So they want to run your case and they want to do it in a manner where, uh, and those are the guys that I have a problem with. If you haven't been there, if you haven't testified, if you haven't served a search warrant, if you haven't made an arrest, if you haven't put those fists, if you haven't made an arrest for an individual who is resisting, okay? If you haven't been there in the fire, then you know what? You Don't be a leader of men. You you got to be there. As I always say, you know, uh, been there, done that, and got the T-shirt. And if you ain't got the T-shirt, then you know what? Stay inside, be an agent, don't bother. We want people, leaders, who have uh, that we can look up to. One of the greatest agents that I know there's a guy in Kansas City. I don't know if you knew him, Craig Arnold. Did you know him, Morgan, at all? He was as an agent. I, I remember when Billy Tubbs was the sack in uh, Kansas City. I actually worked, talked with some guys, uh, Mike Napier, some other guys that worked out of the field office. They actually, but like you were saying, a lot of organized crime there, but I never knew that guy. Yeah, he was uh, the agent involved in the shooting where the source got shot in an undercover hotel in Kansas City. Anyway, Greg DePalmo, I mean, uh, Craig Arnold was our, our, he was an agent, but he was technically our boss. We went to him. He was a former Marine. This guy knew everything. We backed you up. He cared for you. I would, like, in other words, the supervisor didn't even exist. We went to him. It was like a gunnery sergeant. We went to this guy because that's the kind of guy that we wanted. But yet he didn't want to go into the management because that means he would have to leave go to headquarters and play the game. So we lost a great opportunity to have a natural born leader who doesn't want to partake in the management program because of all the, uh, the rules and, uh, you know, uh, uh, and changes. So personally, I, I, I don't think is the problem with management uh, to me, it wasn't my bag. I didn't want to be one. I like being a brick agent, I like being on the street. Uh, uh, I've run into a lot of conflicts with some bosses, but Hey, you know what? They didn't like me. Well, guess what? I didn't like them either. It's funny. You should mention that you talk about going to headquarters. A friend of mine actually was an analyst uh, at the bureau, believe it or not, worked across the hall from Robert Hansen for a while. Um, oh, yeah. Wow. And but one of their statements, one of the things they always said was they would see these people come in here. You get the type that don't want to make waves, but you get the kind that come in there and they think they know everything. And it's like, I'm going to change the world. And they go, I can stand on my head, like you were saying, I can stand on my head for two years because you're going to rotate out in less than two years. All I have to do is head nod you, pal, and you're going to be gone and gone out to some field office. So uh, it's so amazing that you say that because a lot of times, but that's the system, right? That's the way it works. If you want to get promoted, even with DEA, right, Steve, you got to come in and do your time at headquarters. Yeah, you got to do that headquarters time. Yeah. 
Well, well, listen to this. What the Bureau did, this was even amazing. They had guys who were established as supervisors, had the network, had all the connections. Uh, some rocket scientist knew direct. I don't know whether it was Comey or Mueller. He decides to say, hey, guess what? They got to rotate. They got to go back to headquarters. Otherwise, they got to step down. So you got a natural born leader, a guy with connection. He has to step down because he's not going up there. He's not drinking the Kool-Aid. So, I mean, the system of promoting, it is so bizarre, it, you know, in the Bureau. And, and that's why, like I said, it's, I've been fortunate where I, I've worked for guys who have been bosses. And I, I've also worked with guys who have no business being bosses, you know. Uh, but it is what it is, you know. And uh, it's a shame that uh, uh, that happens. But, you know. Well, well that's there are leaders. Like, like, Go ahead, Steve. I was going to say, it's, I mean, to this day, I'm guessing you and Joe Pistone have gone farther in the, in the, um, the, what we would call the mafia world, the families there. Cosa Nostra, Steve, not La Cosa Nostra, Cosa Nostra. (laughs) Well, but but I was talking about lamb. I thought we were going to have, you mentioned lamb, but, uh, but I mean, seriously, (laughs) you two have gone farther than anybody. And we're, you know, Joe is a friend of ours and, um, he'll be up here soon on the show. Um, but it just it boggles the mind that you've got this golden opportunity, and like you said, Joe got six years. He was going to be made, but you know, depending on who you believe, I tend to believe what Joe says. You know, the danger factor was getting really hot for him. It it boggles my mind also that you're willing to fly undercover to Sicily and go right. I mean, you talk about jumping out of the Pan oh, no, it was fire. for the pizza. Oh, it was for the pizza and wine. That's what he was going there for. He said the guy was the pizza guy. You told me he was the pizza guy. Oh my gosh! <laughs> it's, just, it, it, it's just astounding, you know. And who wins? Who loses? Who wins is the bad guys. Who loses? Yeah, is the- but but you know what? That's kind of like it blows my mind that if you're in, at like maybe Joe's case might have been different in mine because they're really not kind of in any way related. But like in my case, there was never any doubt who I was but Jack Falcone. There was never anybody thinking like, like for instance, Joe Pistone's case, I know that, that Joe Messina thought that he was no good and there was issues of the killing, et cetera, et cetera. But in my case, there was never any issue of any of that. So why would you not keep moving up the ladder? Just you, you've been working our dope or rather uh, organized crime. You know the pecking order. You, you know, it just, you know what it is, but working on the cover, I come to learn and say, listen, this was my job. I got asked to work on the cover. I did the best that I could and how I did it, but I'm not going to lose sleep over this. I'm not going to let it affect me. I'll just move on to another undercover. But of all the undercover cases that I've done, and I've done over a hundred of them, and that doesn't even include the buy bus. This to me was a big regret because we could have done this, and uh, and it just, it's like an empty, something I never was able to finish. Every other case, I feel comfortable, police corruption, po- political corruption, Russian cases, Asian cases, you name it, and, and dope cases left and right, and you feel good about them. But this one here is like, I can't believe it, can't believe it. The, the guy that was saying, you know, the, the criminals are getting old, well, that's when we need you in there because you're going to identify the young guys coming up, and you're yeah. you're one of the guys that's going to move up. I mean, holy cow! 
Exactly. It's just bizarre. It's bizarre. But you know what? They all stood there on the podium when the, oh, yeah. they had the press release, and they all quickly went back to their desk and filled out their their uh, advancement. Hey, now I want to become uh, a supervisor. Wants to be an ASAC. The ASAC wants to become SAC. Uh, SAC. Yeah, exactly. So it's up to like. And you know what Jack Garcia wanted to do? Make case. He wanted to get something to eat. That's hey, well, the other thing too is you can always tell you can always tell the glory hounds because their right arm is longer than their left arm. Did you know that? Because they spend so much time patting themselves on the back. Um, yes. the right arms. Hey, I want to end up with a couple things here as we bring this to a close. But this is a- hold on. If we keep it up, Morgan, I'll be waking up in an hour, my usual time. Oh, that's okay. That's Murph. Murph's been asleep <laughs> half this half this podcast. Um, only busting you. Well, and there's something else we got to cover before we go to yeah. Morgan's. But but I wanted to ask you though. Uh, and this is a question we talked to Dominic about, Jay Dobbins about, you know, people have worked undercover. Uh, Lou, Lou Velozzi, actually, we asked him because Lou went to a dark place for quite a while. How do you ensure that your undercover role doesn't become you? How, how do you keep that distinction well, philosophically between uh, Jack Garcia and Jack Falcone? You know, I get asked that uh, at times, and uh, I think I have a, a very good, strong family. Uh, my family, my brothers and sisters, my mother and father, and of course my wife and daughter. I think you got to keep things in perspective and realize that it's all make believe. It's like we're actors taking on a role, and that role will end. And then, luckily for me, I was able to bounce to other cases where it was a challenge. This is like a chess game when you work on the cover. You try to to advance and advance, and then okay, that's it, or no more to go, then you go to another chess game. So uh, as far as keeping uh, keeping it real, so to speak, I never think it affected me. The only thing that I saw differently was that, uh, you know, other people, and I've seen and I've heard stories of agents who go drinking, who divorce their wives, who go and rob things, and it affects them mentally. And, and I could see how people do that. My thing was eating. I'm one of those closet eaters. When I'm stressed out, I eat. So I think a lot of my weight gain was because of the stress levels that I was at. But when I ate, I felt good. And when I was out with these wise guys, that's all we did is eat. The more I ate, the more they loved me. Like, oh, Jackie, forget about it. Look at you eat. Mud on. What are you doing? But, you know, it's sometimes I, I would find solace. But I've always had... I felt comfortable being out there because my wife understood the rules. Her husband, I'm sorry, her father was a NYPD detective and she knew the life and she was able to understand why I missed Christmas, why I missed a special daughter occasion, why I missed this and I missed that. Why wasn't I home? Because she knew eventually would be over. So when I did my UC, I didn't have her in my head saying like, you know, man, we had a fight, we blew up. She was very understanding, and I think that kept me grounded. Uh, Without the support of at home or your family, you're basically out there, you're either sink or swim, you know, and I I felt very comfortable being out there. I knew that uh, at home everything was taken care of and that um, mentally and all of it, it it was just an acting role. And I just moved on to the next role, you know. Now, in your, and you, you hit on the topic I mentioned there to Morgan just now was the family. Because this, 
this is these are not nine to five jobs. This is a lifestyle. You know, this is something, and you've taken it to the nth degree. You know, the the fact that I'm out working 18, 20 hours a day, seven days a week is one thing. But I mean, you're out there living this. So in your career, how where were you in your career when you met your wife? And you got you guys got married. Actually, we got married uh, in 1984. So I was already an agent for four four years. So she went to the evolution of, of that, you know, of uh, of me starting to work on the cover and continuing and expanding it and uh, and all of that. So it was uh, it was um, I, I really felt good about that, knowing that everything was home. She was taking care of it. And that she won't, because if not, it, it really would destroy you. It wasn't like, you know, you hear the horror stories of agents going to another place. And one guy, I heard a story where I don't know what agency he was with. He got sick and this case agent didn't want to come out and help him. So he wound up seeking the help of uh, the bad guys uh, who took him to the actual hospital. So, you know, and, and also one of the things about Greg De Palma, it was very taxing with him. He really was very dependent on me. He really grew to to like me very much. I remember we had the next telephones. Remember those things? And he would chirp. And when you're in the mob and he calls you and you don't answer him, he'll ream you out. He says, hey, I called you. You fucking answer the phone. I don't give a shit what you're doing, which is part of the mob way. And then what he also told me is the reason you don't answer the phone is how do I know you ain't locked up? So he would test his guys on his crew by calling us all hours of the night about nonsensical stuff like, hey, Jackie boy, don't forget tomorrow. We got to go here, okay? Like, yeah, I knew that. What are you telling me? Then another guy in the crew will come back and say, he called me up. He asking me if I'm watching Real Bravo on TNT. You know, but <laughs> that was that was test that he was putting on. So one time my wife, uh, mother passed away and I'm at the, at the wake. Now, I can't tell Greg De Palma that my mother-in-law passed away because he would be there in a heartbeat as well as other guys that would come up with all kinds of flowers. So I had to keep it hushed. So here I am in, in the uh, funeral parlor and right over see Jackie boy, Jackie boy, pick up. And my wife heard it. I went outside and took the call. I took the call, not because I wanted to, I took the call because it would have set me back so much and my wife understood that. She didn't say, what are you doing? When you work on the cover, it's a 24-7. If you're working full-time on the cover, if you're a cameo, if I'm working dopers where I'm doing deals, I don't have to answer. And then the guy say, I called you. Yeah, so what? What do you want? You can't say that to the mob because the mob is all about you being in this close family and nothing else matters but the mob. So if you're not available, you're either locked up and, and that's just not proper behavior. So now as your gr- daughter is growing up, what does she say when her friends ask her, what's your dad do? Oh, it's funny because when she was growing up, my daughter told she, I was Italian. She was, you know, because she was, uh, you know, I would have like all these different phones and and you would hear the old man calling. Like when I came to visit, you know, I would hear, hey, Jackie boy. And she would say, hey, daddy, the bad man's calling you because I would say that's the bad man's phone. He's calling you, Daddy, and I would, you know, pick up. Uh, but my daughter kind of uh, took it in in stride. She knows uh, that I was working on on the cover. I don't. She's never read my book, uh, and I don't think uh, you know how kids are. You know, it's uh, 
it's one of those things, but I am grateful to her. I know I drove her around when I retired. I drove her around when she was in grades. My daughter's very young. She's only, now she's 22. So when she was younger during this operation, I would drive her to school once I got done. And basically there was no difference between driving my five-year-old daughter around and or driving the Palma. Daddy, can you get me an ice cream? Can you take me uh, yes. here? Can we do this? Exactly. It was I the got, same thing. You got a hooch for me? Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> you got a hunch for me. That's right. You got a hunch for if yeah. did, did your daughter ever ask for a hunch there? Dad? No, but she knows what hunch is because I've, I've, we've talked about it. In fact, I think she might have once in a while. I'm going shopping, Dad. I need a hunch. You there know? you go. So, But it, it's funny how uh, the world of undercover works and I could see why people uh, have issues and I understand that and my heart goes out to them and uh, it's one of those things where uh, you know uh, it just breaks your heart hearing about guys that are left on their own I think I was fortunate that I had a group of great guys working with me we all kept tight with one another I on the phone I would call I would keep in touch that would keep me abreast of what's going on. Hey, you hear about so-and-so, he's got a promotion, he's transferring. So I was still in the mix of what was happening. And I think that's important because if you leave somebody out there cold, you know, you're going to get in trouble. Well, that was, uh, and we've said this on the, on our podcast before when we've interviewed other law enforcement professionals about the, the, you know, the things that you do are heroic. The things that our families put up with is beyond that. They are the the unsung heroes of all of law enforcement professionals because they've got to sit back, not knowing when you're going to come home or if you're going to come home. You know, so God bless your wife and daughter for putting up with all the crap they put up with. Oh yeah, true saints, true saints. Hey, let's finish up by talking about what you're doing now because um, your book, when it was written, um, it got picked up, it got optioned, as they say in Hollywood. Did anything come out of that? No, but I'm hoping Steve uh, connects me with the right people. <laughs> no, uh, what happened? Was, I know a guy. Yeah, here we go again. You sound like Greg De Palma. Steve, I need you to do something for me. <laughs> hey, Steve, can I get a hunch? Uh, yeah, I want to. Anyway, uh, what happens with Paramount picked it up? Uh, there's been many failed attempts. Supposedly, they were going to do a movie with Benicio del Toro. Then something happened, and then this happened. I kind of walked away from it. The good thing is I get my option payment every year. So that's still good. But I can't get involved with it anymore because it's very frustrating that, oh, it's going to happen. We're going to do a TV. I mean, I'm attached to some really significant people, and I'm just amazed that they can't make this happen. I mean, you talk about Steve Soderbergh, Michael Schamberg, and these are great people, but Hollywood is what it is. I, I, I can't figure it out, nor do I want. Uh, I thought the bureau management was messed up. Hollywood is even oh worse. My God. Oh with, my God, without a doubt, man, I don't get. So I'm working. If any, uh, if any, I do volunteer work with the Guardians of Rescue, which is a uh, a, a an animal uh, organization rescue group, and um, help them out when I can and volunteer. But that's it. The rest of my time is uh, just uh, enjoying life and. Uh, uh, hopefully, staying above uh, every day above ground is a good day, brother. You you have earned. I mean, yep. I'm just you're my hero now. I, I don't have heroes, but damn, what you did and we just did our job. All of us, you know what? We're all 
in life, I look at things like we all were blessed. We all were lucky in what we did. I was blessed to have worked with some amazing people. You guys were blessed to have worked with amazing people. And, and, and it's unfortunate that some people get all the glory. Like for me to work as an undercover, I owe my success to those that work with me. Even the secretaries who did the work, my paperwork translated, the AUSA, it's a whole machinery. But, you know, I guess sometimes you look at it and, and say, you know, you got the kudos out of it. You know, you, you get the award, but it, it's not. I always look at it that none of it would have been possible had it not been for all those. Team effort. It's a team, you know, people ask, people ask Javier and I that a similar question. How did you do this? And my response is always, they didn't hire me because I was real smart. And you, my friend, fall in that category. <laughs> He guessed his way into the U.S. citizenship. He guessed his way into the FBI. The dude, that's you're you're like you're like uh, you're like Peter Sellers when he was playing Inspector Clouseau. Is he just that lunatic, or is he crazy like a fox? I think you're crazy like a fox, pal. Yeah, I'm telling you, I have been blessed to to have survived working undercover for so long and not been compromised, considering my size. I mean, come on. Look at look at me. You can't tell me that you're not going to know who I was, and but I, I, it's been lucky. I've been so uh, you're not a you forgettable know, guy. I still can't get over it. Hey, last question before we roll this up. You you talked about all the cases. Has there ever been a credible threat uh, against you because of your UC work? No, they they thought at first there was a murder contract in prison with this bad guy named Guzzo, but it turned out to that I actually heard. Uh, a podcast with the mobster making it that the guy confided that he made it up, that he had a contract on me because he wanted to take the polygraph test and pass just to prove that a fail rather just to prove that he could beat the polygraph. But there has not been any credible threat. And no, I don't think there would, as you know, the mob uh, doesn't work on the concept of, they know that hurting a cop or an agent or uh, even civilians now is bad for business. I mean, if you look at all the podcasts that are being run by former guys in the life and they're out there in open view, nobody's taking any repercussion. The mob doesn't do that uh, anymore. And as far as any of the other cases, the only people I worry about, uh, and Steve, you would know this, is that, you know, you deal with these cartel guys, these sicarios. Uh, the Mexican Sicarios that I've dealt cases with uh, and the Colombians. I mean, some of these guys are psychopaths, you know, and uh, not that I would run into them or be in their company, but you always have to watch out where you're at at all times because, you know, somebody sees you out there, they may be drinking up a storm. They may want to prove how macho they are. And, you know, if you don't go loaded for bear, God forbid anything could happen, but it's like that idiot on the it. plane who was taunting Mike Tyson and then like spilled look, and then Mike gets up and yes. punched him. Well, what the hell did you think was going to happen? <laughs> Mike Tyson even said famously, you know, uh, everybody has the plan until they get punched in the mouth, you know? So that dude got like I was lucky he didn't bite his freaking ear off. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, hey, look, yes. well, let's bring oh, this to man. a close. So don't go anywhere. We got a couple things to do right after this stops, but this is me. People can't see this, but this is me saluting you, Joaquin, Jack Garcia, Senor. Oh, we are we are in uh, debt to you for the work that you did. We're very proud to have you on this podcast. 
Um, Absolutely. I just got one thing. Don't don't have me whacked, okay? Don't, I know you got guys, but just don't have me whacked. <laughs> hey, Jack, I want to I want to add on to that, man. It, it is a true honor to have you on here. Um, the things that you say to me are, are very humbling. In my eyes, you're a freaking hero. You're a legend in the law enforcement community. You accomplish things that most guys dream about doing. Uh, we're going to work on your accent because if you're going to, you know, if you're going to visit the South occasionally, you, you got to learn to speak that. like I do. So <laughs> there's your next undercover. Yeah. But brother, All just right. so proud of what you did. You're a true American patriot and a true American hero. Thank you for your service. Likewise, you guys, man. I thank you very much. It's an, indeed an honor. welcome to the United States, brother, even though you guessed your way in. We're going to have to talk. We're going to have yes. to talk about that. Okay. You all, you all, you all, don't go anywhere. Y'all, y'all, and you all stay tuned for the debrief. Mr. Jack Falcone. I wish they just, I wish that they hadn't pulled the plug on that and let him go through and actually become a made guy. I mean, the way uh, Joe Pistone did it, you know, if they would have just let him become a made guy, can you imagine how much more damage they would have been able to inflict on all of those crime families? And they start having to worry about, hey, is this guy FBI? Is he, you know, is he, you know, we just made this guy. And plus the discussion of the ceremony, Steve, pales in comparison to the one Steve Matelski showed us of the guys in the velour running suits. You know, <laughs> hey, you know, you come up here and do this. Yeah, I guess they lower their standards when they go up to Canada. I don't know. That just uh, must have been a really damn good buffet they were heading to that day. But, you know, what I like about Jack's story is, is he tells the truth at the end about, you know, you've got. People making decisions when he's out risking his life every day for three straight years. I mean, his family is suffering. He never know where he is, what he's doing. He's never home for anything. And you got people who probably the only time they ever pull their gun out is when they go to the range, have never worked undercover, and they're making the decisions that's going to endanger this guy's life for the rest of his life. You know, Jack won't, we're not going to tell you where Jack lives. He's not going to tell you where he lives. Because he's still under threats from these people. These are dangerous people. And it wasn't just the mafia that he infiltrated. It was all these other criminal organizations. So um, it's just, you know, I mean, it's bureaucracy is what it is. I don't know how you get around it, but what a damn shame. A golden opportunity was missed simply because somebody was making decisions that probably had no business making those decisions. You're a little vague about that, Murph. You want to be more specific? (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, when you get up to the supervisory ranks, in my opinion, you it doesn't make you more important than anybody else. You have a different job. And the way I it doesn't make you any smarter either. A lot of people think I've got the rank and all of a sudden now I'm I'm an Alfred Einstein. I'm a genius. And I always told my troops, I don't have all the freaking answers. Here's the way I view my job. My job is to make sure you have the tools and the resources you need to do your job. I'm going to monitor you through, you know, your executive staff and so forth. But, you know, you're right. How far could they have infiltrated not only the Gambino family, but all the other uh, mafia families in New York City. Oh, yeah, I mean, the, the the opportunity was there to make more introductions to more people, get more people involved. But hey, again, like you say, uh, it, but hey, look, we're not dogging, definitely we're not dogging Jack. Jack not is a freaking hero in our books. The guy, again, the epitome of the American dream, somebody who came to this country, made a name for himself, contributed to society, and defended and protected mm-hmm. the very country that was the nemesis of the country he came from. So Right, and and I can't tell you the date, but later this month will be his birthday. I think he'll be 29 years old. 29 really, years but, old. 
Feliz cumpleaños, amigo. Feliz cumpleaños. By the way, I did edit that out. Jack Jack was letting his guard down. He gave us the exact date. And I'm going, nah, Jack, I'm going to have to edit this part out. <laughs> you may hear a little bit of a glitch at the beginning. I had to kind of morph some things out. But yeah, suffice it to say, he goes, what are you sending me for my birthday? Here's a guy who spent way too much time with the mom. Now he's saying, what are you going to do for me? You, yeah. know? <laughs> hey, you know what? I did send him something. <laughs> it went out uh, day before yesterday. Oh, cool. Would you send him an autographed picture of yourself in a Speedo? I ran out of those. They were so popular. <laughs> yeah. Couldn't give those away. All right. Anyway, hey, guys. Well, let us let us bring this to a close. But, hey, anyway, head on over to Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars. Let us know what you think about the episode. Jack, th- this was a great episode with Jack Falcone. Uh, hit those five stars, Apple, Spotify. Also, head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. Get his book about Jack Falcone, the name he used to infiltrate the mob, listen to his, or listen, read his story, hear his story. You know, it, it's a terrific thing. So we've got that on our book page. Also follow us on social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes on Facebook and the Instagram. And also head on over to paypal.com. Use our email, gameofcrimespodcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash gameofcrimes, whatever it makes it easier for you. But Murph, where do you got to be? Where do you got to be? Where do you got to be? You got to be over on Patreon. Come and join us over there. Check out the extra content we have there. Give us your ideas. If, you, if you've got an idea of something you'd like us to do on Patreon, let us know. Send it to us through our, our uh, social media page or on any of the social medias that Morgan just told you about. And we're always open to comments. We're open to ideas. We can have a difference of opinions, everybody. It doesn't mean we have to be enemies, but let's and discuss it. And we love it. you. Hey, look, we've had we've had good discussions uh, back and forth. Everything from teenage suicides and the use of marijuana, how they're tied to police corruption, to uh, some of the cases that are out there. Uh, we just did a Patreon episode, Steve, where you and I, and actually we got some uh, Fred Nicolosi, one of our uh, longtime supporters. We got a lot of comments from people back, Michelle Tackaberry, other folks, because they didn't understand. You hear a lot about classified information, so we did a whole uh, Warden of the Throne episode. You had to be at the highest level. But we did a very in-depth kind of discussion about the handling of classified information, what it means, how you store things. So uh, we kept it non-political. We just simply talked about the mechanics, what it means, how information's handled, et cetera. So a lot, we do deep dives on a lot of stuff. But anyway, that's where you got to be. Yeah, one of the thing, one of the one of my favorite things is the Q and A, where our listeners you can we haven't turned down a single question yet, and some of them get kind of a little bit in depth and maybe a little personal, but we don't say no. So come on over, try just check us out. Only when they ask about what size speedo does Murph wear. That one I had to edit out. Uh, I'm not going to say anything about that because they probably get nasty. So, <laughs> but come to Patreon, maybe you know, you maybe, never know. Maybe we we'll might find out. That. Okay, guys. Well, hey, look. We want to thank you guys for being uh, players out there, for supporting us. Like I say, just drop us comments. Let us know what you need. Game of Crimes Podcast at gmail.com. Drop us notes. But we want to thank you guys once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the original, adult-friendly, uh, speedo-loving Game of Crimes. 